Well, before we get started, um, there are handouts on the back table. And if this is uh, not, the, not the topic that you wanted to, to go through, it's your time to shoot out of here and go to another, another session. This one is on, yeah, <laughs> Trace. Uh, this one is on self-harm. And uh, we're going to go ahead and have a word of prayer and get started. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for the conference and the things that we have been able to learn. I pray that you would uh, just help us as we work through some of these more delicate issues uh, in our churches, uh, that we would have wisdom from your word, that it would be helpful, Lord, even to, to go through this session uh, for uh, wisdom as we, as we manage these things. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so toward a biblical solution to self-harm, uh, Pastor Doran mentioned yesterday, Walter Kaiser has a whole series of books toward, uh, you know, a Old Testament exegesis and things like that. So I'm certainly not going to solve any of the issues today, uh, but hopefully this will be helpful. Uh, this, unlike self-harm and cutting, unlike other issues, is difficult because it's it's not a uniquely biblical issue that somebody would come to you know your office and say hey you know I'm struggling with this um, if somebody came with anxiety uh, we could go to many passages of scripture and hopefully we would hopefully a pastor would not say well that's beyond me you're going to need to go and see a, a specialist for something like that hopefully the pastor would say well we've got Matthew chapter six. We have Philippians chapter 4, we've got 1 Peter chapter 5, and say the Bible has a lot to say uh, concerning this issue, or uh, somebody coming in with depression. Uh, hopefully, pastors, counselors would not say, boy, that's, I don't, I don't even know what to tell you. You need to go and, and you know, see a medical doctor and all these things, where I think that depression is a uniquely biblical issue. Psalm 42 addresses that issue. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? I think that Elijah was depressed, and I think that we could make a pretty good case that at times Paul was depressed. Until the coming of Titus, he was struggling with, with a low. So there are uniquely biblical issues that we would face. Uh, somebody coming to your office with anger or anger issues. Of course, there's plenty in Scripture. Well, where does the Bible actually address some of these more bizarre issues, uh, things like harming you know, oneself? We, can't, we cannot certainly resort to, some of you might know this, this name, uh, Bob Newhart, uh, in, in his classic you know, presentation of a problem, stop it. Stop it. You know, if, it if it were that easy then uh, quite a few things wouldn't have happened. Uh, going through, you know, biblical training, you know, for counseling wouldn't have happened if it, you could just narrow it down to stop it. But that's not, that's not the case. So getting to the heart of the issue, when these types of, and I would, I'm, I'm not meaning this to be demeaning at all, but more of your bizarre types of issues, and there's, there's many forms of self-harm. I'm going to focus on cutting today, but there are, there are other forms. Um, you, could, you could actually call uh, anorexia or bulimia a form of self-harm. 
somebody is harming their body in some type of a tangible way. I, th I think, has anybody in here read through uh, Counseling the Hard Cases? Uh, Heath, uh, I believe Heath Lambert and uh, Stuart Scott, a couple of you. I, I told Stuart years ago that I thought the hardest case in that book was probably the anorexia case. And I, I talked to him about that uh, a few years ago in a class, and he said, well, I mean, one of the issues is you got to eat. It's, it's there all of the time. It's in front of everybody all of the time. So it makes it, it, makes it complex in that sense. Uh, when, you, when you have issues of people harming themselves over things that uh, are pretty normal, like food. In this one, now I was, I was thinking how to ask this without being weird or anything like that, but uh, when I, I was a public school kid, I went to a public school for about 11 and a half years and transferred over to a Christian school uh, the last year and a half of, uh, of my schooling. And I had never heard of anybody doing this, of somebody cutting themselves. Um, it's something that, that I, you know, when I first came into this and started reading some of the literature, I'd never really heard of it before because... From my perspective, uh, that'd be about the last thing that I would want to do if I was down about something or struggling with something is I would want to hurt myself. I'm not a big pain guy. So the effort of, of even me within the context that I had coming to a realization that this is real, that people actually do this and they struggle with this was a, a bit of a challenge because of my background and my understanding of things. So there is a great call for us, especially now, uh, to think through things on a deeper level and, and assume that these are real problems with real people that are coming in for help. I think that, uh, you know, having counseled some with panic attacks, uh, does anybody know what we used to call those back, back many years ago? It's called the nervous breakdown. And my grandmother had one at one point. I, I wasn't there for it, but my mom was privy to the issue. Now uh, it seems so prevalent that it, uh, it makes it difficult to relate. And sometimes when we're, when we're trying to, as pastors, as counselors, trying to relate, is we do have to get into their world. And, and we'll talk about how to do that. But it is a difficulty for many just because of the, in a sense, the bizarre nature of the situation. So how do we, how do we define cutting? Let me just say this too. I, I, I will get through the notes and probably just open it up for questions towards the end. Lord willing, we'll have, we'll have time for that, for questions as we get through. But how do we define it? <clears throat> uh, in, a, in, a, in a basic definition, uh, it is a form of self-harm in which a person purposely cuts or scratches the skin. So there's some type of uh, harm being done. Um, in my experience, in seeing the situation, it's usually done with some type of a, a knife, a razor blade, in which there are definitive marks left in the skin. Uh, we as teachers go to Bob Evans every year at the beginning of the school year. I teach over at the high school across the, the parking lot there. And uh, we show up the one day and the lady at Bob Evans who was serving us uh, was, you could tell, was cutting uh, or had cut because uh, the uniform for Bob Evans is a shorter sleeve shirt. 
she came to serve us our coffee and things like that. And it was very obvious, the, the markings all the way down. And people, people will take sharp objects, knives uh, and razor blades, and, and actually put those markings into their skin. Julie Ganshaw actually elaborates a bit. She says that self-harm uh, cutting is self-mutilation, self-injury, self-harm can be defined as an attempt to intentionally cause harm to one's body. The injury is usually severe enough to cause tissue damage to some degree from superficial scarring to permanent major disfigurement, such as amputation. And in its most extreme forms, it could get to that if somebody is harming their body to that point. Now, how do we describe it? There's two different levels here. There's obviously the, the level of modern psychiatry, psychology. How do they categorize this? Sometimes it is helpful, especially to know what's going on in the world. I don't know that, um, that we would always want to lean super heavily on uh, the standards of the world for our explanations. But we do know that uh, the world psychiatry says cutting is categorized typically in two different ways, suicidal self-injury and non-suicidal self-injury. So if you were to look at the latest uh, psychology manuals, you're going to see the, the levels and then the levels of care for the individual depending on where they are. Uh, typically, cutting self-harm for a person coming in for help is the NSSI, the non-suicidal form, and this is the deliberate self-inflicted destruction of body tissue resulting in immediate damage without suicidal intent and for purpose not socially sanctioned. So <clears throat> if that's all we have uh, for definitions and so forth, then the, the biggest question is where does the Bible address this? this type of, of bizarre issue. So what we want to do, uh, like with any counseling situation, is you have to frame things biblically. You can't just leave things out there for uh, definitions because there's, there's understandings that we have to have, and we need to frame this in a scriptural way. So I think the best way to do that is to look at specific issues in the scriptures in which people cut themselves, try to get to the framing of that, the why, and then, you know, in a sense, their motivation. Why are they doing this? The first one there is 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 28. These are the prophets of Baal as they are coming up against Elijah. And it says there, So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. So they cut themselves. Uh, and, and we know the, the story. They were trying to get the attention of their God. They were trying to, uh, because of the confrontation that was there, uh, using what I, I label there a Canaanite rite of imitative magic to cause the release of the vital rain upon which life depended. It was a rite intended to rouse Baal to bring rain. So there was intentionality. The motivation was not only uh, to win the battle against Elijah and this, this issue that they were facing, whose God is the, the ultimate God. It was already an established cultural idea uh, within their pagan practices. Uh, this bloodletting was this Canaanite rite of imitative magic. 
I think we can also see this in the Gospel of Mark. We understand that the demoniac uh, in Mark chapter 5 and verse 5 it says, And constantly night and day among the tombs and in the mountains he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. The word translated gashing is the Greek word which means to cut, bruise, or beat. Uh, one commentator, Hebert, says this word indicates that repeatedly the man lacerated his body with stones, sharp flints. Apparently his whole body was covered with the scars. So the cutting resulted from really the influence of the demonic, and we understand that. Now we have to be careful here because the person coming into the room saying, I've been cutting, I've been harming myself, you can't just jump immediately to, oh, this is demonic, you know, this person is demon-possessed, and, and calling down some level, I, I don't believe in casting out of demons or anything like that, but calling down some level of, of you know, a prayer that's different than the normal prayer, you know, and I think that we have to be careful of, of jumping to that. But just by way of analysis, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 teaches us a, a very important truth, and that is there is no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man. So to say that this bizarre behavior uh, that people would face is disconnected from Scripture would be way out of the boundaries. Okay? How do we actually navigate connecting it to the Scripture is going to be, you know, it's going to take some wisdom and it's going to take some skill to do that. But we first have to realize that this is a human issue. These are real humans in the Scriptures that are really cutting themselves, and they're cutting themselves for a purpose. There's, there's substance there, there's motivation that's there, and we'll get to how, to how to dig a little bit deeper into the heart motivations. But the first thing that we see is that the scriptures frame human experience so that we can't run aside and say, okay, this is outside of the boundaries of scripture. The scripture is not sufficient for this. Because if the scriptures frame it, then we do have guidance, we do have wisdom from scripture uh, to deal with this. Second, to dismiss any connection with pagan or satanic activity would be inappropriate. We can't go that far. You got to keep it with, you know, outside of the two ditches. The Bible says nothing about this or you know, we just jump to the conclusion that this is uniquely satanic and demon possession. Uh, Verkler uh, in the Baker Encyclopedia of Counseling and Psychology it's a help, helpful quote here. Abnormality may be the result of interaction between developmental events occurring at the natural level, and Satan, using a combination of our sin natures, the attraction of the world system of thinking and demonic agents, trying to draw people away from God. So to say that this is completely disconnected from any satanic activity or uh, temptation or uh, even I, I would go to some level of oppression, uh, to disconnect it from that would be inappropriate. Okay, so the, the Bible frames this and helps us to understand that this is a human issue and that there is something deeper going on. At times, temptations that, that we can't even see, influences that are at times beyond us. So as we dig a little bit deeper, try to understand the motives for cutting. So why would somebody do this? Ganshaw reveals self-injurers commonly report 
They feel empty inside, stressed, unable to express their feelings, lonely, not understood by others, and fearful of intimate relationships and adult responsibilities. Okay, so there's context, there's, there's issues in that person's life that is driving them uh, to some type of external manifestation. There's an internal battle, something's going on in their thinking, in the way that they process things, in their, in their relationships, interactions, that is driving them. And my understanding, not always, but typically this is a hidden sin. And with hidden sins, those are, are even more difficult to diagnose. The motives, why, why are they doing this? If, if they're not trying to react and get the social interaction that they're lacking, then why are they doing this in a hidden way? It doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to really you know, mesh together. So I say there, the best way to understand the motives of the heart as the person cuts is to ask probing questions. Several appropriate questions to ask include the following. Do you recall what you were thinking about while you were hurting yourself? Do you know what pain you are trying to relieve? Have you tried another method of pain relief? How does cutting help you and your situation? And what positive or godly feelings do you get from cutting? Now, one of the things that we do uh, here at Delta Biblical uh, Counseling Center is we, we send people a questionnaire. So they, they've come to us or there's a reference from a, a church as we send them a questionnaire so that um, when we understand the situation better and, and why they're coming to us, and one of the questions is, why are you addressing this now? How can we help you with this? Many of those types of questions are done for us, and that's, that's solid gold. Because if you can already have a basic, uh, at least a basic framework or understanding. Now, sometimes that's not coming from the person who is cutting, especially if you're dealing with adolescence. You're dealing with a 13-year-old girl that's coming to you for counseling, coming to the church for counseling. Sometimes that's not prompted by her. That's prompted because mom saw her. She accidentally walked into the bathroom and Okay, the revelation is there, okay, and this is a problem. So some of the questions, and it, it, is a, it is a wisdom issue for the counselor, is I don't know that the 13-year-old can really articulate fully why they're doing it. So one of the things that I, I say there is, in that next paragraph, asking why questions is probably not the best thing. Okay, uh, because they don't know. Ultimately, if you were to ask, why are you doing this? I don't know. You know, if you were to ask that perhaps by uh, mom or dad coming in, why are they doing this? You might get a little bit more information, but you're not, I mean, it, it could be stunted pretty quickly. <laughs> you know, why are you doing this so I can help you with the scriptures? I don't know. I don't know. So asking questions that are designed to probe a little bit deeper than the surface. What is going on in your life? You know, what, are you, what is your thought process when you actually cut? Are you, are you trying to get back at somebody? Are you hurting on a lot of different levels? Has somebody hurt you? 
So there are probing questions that, that must be asked to get to that. And I, I think in counseling, the reason why why questions are not the greatest, I guess, I guess sometimes they, they could be appropriate, and that's, that's a timing thing. But notice uh, just a couple of different observations. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 would be, would be huge. Man's heart is so deceitful and desperately wicked that he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even know his own motivations, ultimately. Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you know, the, the Corinthians were after him. And he said, I don't even know my own motivations. It's God that judges. So knowing what's going on in the heart takes time and it takes a, a skill of drawing things out through questions. I think that Jesus was the master questioner. When you look at his ministry and how he designed getting to the, the deeper parts of the conflict that he had with the Pharisees or the issues with the disciples, what would he do? He would ask questions and he would ask, uh, not why, so Peter, why did you just ask that? Why did you just say that? You know, uh, why, why would you say, you know, this, this is not going to happen to you, Lord? Okay, and we know sometimes, uh, and this is not in the Greek, but sometimes Peter could be a knucklehead. We know that. He would just blurt things out. So Jesus was not into asking just why questions. Proverbs 20 and verse 5 says, A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. So the counselor must understand the motive and underlying heart issues to help the person overcome cutting. It's got to go deeper. There's something else that I have to understand in order to help this person. So influences, and again, a a basic data inventory answers some of these, and that is what are the idols of the heart? What's going on with this person and what types of things are drawing their hearts away from obedience to the Lord? What is it in their life that has such a profound effect? And we know this, Ezekiel 14 one through five, I won't read the, the entire passage. But Ezekiel says, Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. So what is the idolatry? What is this heart uh, worshiping that I have to identify. What is it that they want? What is it that they desire out of life? And, and some questions can be as simple as, uh, you know, what do you desire out of life? What is it that you're desiring that this cutting yourself is doing? What, what is it that you want? How is this helping you? Because then, well, it's helping me because uh, it makes me feel better. Well, it's helping me because I'm getting back at mom and dad for telling me what to do. Okay, so then in in the question process and trying to understand, okay, there's, there's something deeper going on here, is asking the questions of, idolatry and not calling it idolatry you know you, you so what what idol are you worshiping right now it's not a great question to to an adolescent uh, it's it's more of as Ezekiel is laying out these these men had set up idols and it doesn't have to be the golden calf type of an idol 
It could be hidden desires of the heart. It could be hidden motivations of revenge at times. I'm going to get them back. They, they can't tell me what to do. And then number two, what are the influences of the heart? I, I wrote this down in my notes yesterday. Pastor Doran had mentioned uh, a phrase, and I think we understand the phrase. It's called cultural contagion. Okay, and, and I, I alluded to that earlier. And that is, I, cutting right now is huge. Popular. Yeah, it's, it's popular. It's, it's out there. It's out there in the airwaves. I noticed uh, at the bottom, celebrities. Once you start seeing celebrities and adolescents and young people or even adults that frame their life around their image, once they start hearing people like Angelina Jolie and Christina Ricci and Fiona Apple and, and several others, that they've, that they've you know, cut themselves before. Then the question is, okay, so what is the cultural malay, <laughs> the, the, the outlook that these people have, and who are, their, who are their role models? Who are the people who are driving uh, this cultural contagion? And I, I, again, I'd never heard of it before. I had never heard of panic attacks before. I, I'd never heard of them until somebody came to me years ago. It's one of my first counseling cases saying that they had had a panic attack at work and the ambulance was called and that type of a thing. Um, there was a part of me that I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to relate uh, to the situation because I, I, I never really heard of it. But now uh, you hear about it all the time. Uh, it's so commonplace for somebody to talk about, yeah, I had a panic attack. Or I had you know, uh, known somebody who was cutting themselves or harming themselves. Just so commonplace in the culture that there's almost a cultural contagion, contagion uh, you know, with that that actually does at least help us to understand, okay, so this is not just some random thing that happened to this kid. Okay, they're living in a culture that's screaming out these things. You, you, will, you will find relief if you do this. Or these particular celebrities struggled with it. I'm struggling with it, and they got over it. Or they're still popular. They still have an image and, and things like that, and the connections that people make. So the counselor should try to discern what cultural influ influences determine a person's present perspective of their troubles. Now, let me be cautious here. Those are not causative. Cultural influences are not causative. Nobody is caused to sin because they saw a celebrity. Okay, nobody is caused to do this because, well, I heard you know, somebody talking about this in, in school. So they, they willfully are doing this for you know, whatever purpose is behind it. So the influences just kind of frame it for us to say, okay, this is the world that they're living in. And a, and a good question is, how many other people do you know who are doing this? Where did you get this information? I mean, is it, is it just something that you just started doing or had you heard about it at school? Had you heard about it from, from somebody that, that is active in doing this? So what are the influences that you can understand and frame the situation in an understanding way. Now, let me just address one thing really quickly. So you're in, you're in one of these types of counseling scenarios. You've got, you've got some information 
that somebody has given to you via questionnaire. Now it's game time. You're actually going to sit down with a person across the table from you, uh, with a mom or a dad or individual, however the, the structure is. What do you do? Okay, how do you start? How do you, how do you begin with something like this? You know, if, it, if it's worry, somebody comes to you, I, I've been worried. Well, you probably start pretty quickly with going, well, let's go to Matthew 6. Let's read through that. You got your homework set, <laughs> you know, read, memorize this, you know, all these things. So a methodology is important. So I, I typically, in my counseling, and have for years, I've used Paul Tripp, and some of you are familiar with his work on instruments in the Redeemer's hands. He lays out a full structure methodology of love, know, speak, and do. Let me just define that really quickly. Love is you have to enter their world. You have to understand what's going on. That's where those influences come in. That's where those idols come in. You have to understand their world and ultimately, at some point, very early on in the counseling, you have to offer them hope. You have to say, there is encouragement from the scriptures. You would take them to passages like Romans 15 and verse 4. With the encouragement of the scriptures, there is hope. And you have to set that because sometimes you're, you're dealing with a situation with a young adolescent and the, the parents are pulling their hair out. They're like, is this ever going to change? How do I deal with this? You know, does, does God have anything to say about this? And early on, you enter the person's world by loving them enough to point them to the remedy for their soul, and that is the scriptures. And through confidence, the counselor and the, the vibes of the counselor are going to come across to the people. If you come across as, I don't, I don't know, you know, let's pray. That's fine. You do want to pray. But if there's not a, if there is not a, okay, here's the plan. Here's the idea. This is what we're, this is what we're going to do. This is the substance that we're going to be driving at. Then sometimes it could be, it could be difficult for the counselee. They, they might not have much confidence. So enter their world. How do you do that? <clears throat> well, you have to at least seek to understand the situation as normative to mankind, not as a bizarre behavior, and get to know the person. Okay, you have to get to know the person. And sometimes in early counseling, that level of love and encouragement and hope, you spend a lot of time on that. Especially, and, and some of us know this, some of these types of situations could be people in your church. You've known them for years. You've observed them. But in a counseling uh, you know, scenario, if you're a part of maybe a counseling center, you've never met the person. You've got a questionnaire and a phone number. Well, how much time does it take to enter into their world and get to know them and get to know their interests and get to know their, their level of concern about this? Sometimes several different sessions. Sometimes it takes uh, two to three just to understand what's going on. The second, the second one is know. You have to know by <clears throat> understanding the situation, by asking questions. Some of that, some of the, the love know second phase is done with the questionnaire. At least you've got substance and you've asked some questions. The speak is you actually speaking truth into their life. At some point in the counseling session, 
There has to be a driving back towards what the scripture says about it. And the last one in trips is do. Okay, what homework are you going to assign? What scripture are you going to have them memorize? What verses are you going to have them read and interact with? So that for the next time you meet with them, that you're driving towards a goal, and that is to show them from the scriptures that there is hope, that there is encouragement, that this, this is not the way that things ought to be. So as we, as we follow this, I say there the scriptural guidance and applications is relate the person's experience to God. Let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 55. Psalm 55. <clears throat> and there are many passages that you could go to. This is just one example. Relating the person's experience to God is really the most loving thing that you can do. Does God care about my hurt? Does God care about the situations in life that I'm, I'm having a tough time with and, and hurting myself because of? I think that Psalm 55, start reading in verse 1. David says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring, uh, bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. And the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away, I would lodge in the wilderness. Let's just pause there. So David is struggling, and we can see that. Uh, there are many different levels of David's life in which he was struggling. Uh, many different occasions of, of uh, David and Saul, David of Absalom, David and the kingdom, issues that he was facing. You know, oftentimes uh, cutting or, uh, you know, self-harm in some sense is an escapism. They're trying to escape reality. This makes me, this makes me actually feel better or I feel... I feel justified in, you know, my course of action. This, this is helping me to do something. I think that as David says here, oh, that I had wings of a dove and I would fly away. Most of us have probably felt like that at some point. I just got a, it was the old commercial, Kelgon, take me away. You know, it was a bath, <laughs> you put it in your bath and I guess it was a relaxing, I don't know, I never had it, but maybe my mom did, I don't know. Um, so... Get, get me away from this. Okay, that is the cry of the human heart. Okay, that's the cry of everybody's heart. So what you're trying to do is relate in love the encouragement of the scripture saying, David struggled too. You're not the only one. The pressures of the kingdom, the pressures of the enemies of God, the pressures of a son trying to kill him, okay? And, and sometimes, and I wouldn't recommend this in counseling, doing a lot of this for that type of analysis or comparison. You know, do you have it worse than David? 
you know, so, so you're saying you've got it worse than David and David was running from his kid and here you are running from some pr- problems at school. I don't recommend that. All right, but what I do recommend is in a loving way saying, if King David, a man after God's own heart and a man who from uh, his, his heart process was God-centered over and over, struggled with the realities of difficulties of life, then you are no different. And God has a remedy. God has help in that sense. So connect, number one there, I say connect the misery of their situation and connect it to men like David. Okay, The outpouring of David's heart God, I need help. He's saying here in verse one, give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. The crying out to God is probably something that they have not done. They've been turning to the cutting. They've been turning to their their own reasonings, okay? Instead of actually turning to, to God for the remedy. Teach them to pour out their complaint to God. One of the ways, I'm not skipping ahead because I think there's some homework stuff later, but one of the ways that you can get them to exercise this is actually writing out their own lament psalm. Okay, write, write a psalm, write a prayer to God in the same, and you could give them some suggestions. Uh, this would be one of them. This would be a great psalm to mimic and, and to follow. But have them, have them write that out so that the next time you meet with them, you can actually discuss and sometimes in that, in that prayer, you'll find out more information about the situation. You'll find out sometimes uh, people's names who have caused them grief or trouble. You know, God, please, and, uh, you know, I guess if they wrote out an imprecatory prayer towards somebody, <laughs> that would be a, a clear indication that, you know, God lay waste to this person. You know, it's like, well, let's not go that far yet, you know. But we have to, we have to understand that we can teach them to pour out their complaint to God. A lament psalm would be a great thing to write out. And then encourage them. Notice at the end of of 55, this, this language you hear in the New Testament as well. Look at verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And where do we see that language? 1 Peter chapter 5. Casting all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. So frame it in an experience of God type of a situation, sometimes you have to call them to repent. Sometimes you call them to repent, repent of the idols of the heart. When those start to surface, you know, we understand Paul's teaching here. Paul teaches in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, they turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So teach them that this particular abandonment of God for the relief that they're seeking inside of, of idols is actually sin. You're probably not going to get that type of language from a, a secular counselor. You're not going to hear sin. Sometimes the church doesn't use the word sin or they shy away from the word sin. If we're not willing to call these types of issues sin, then we're actually not giving the encouragement and hope that that counselee needs so desperately. Because if it's not a sin, then is there actually a remedy? 
okay, then what, what did Jesus die for? If this is not, if we can't label this as a, a sinful action. So the relief, this is on uh, page, uh, next page, the relief that the cutter seeks can only be realized if he turns from his idolatry to God in repentance. The counselee must be challenged to turn from his seeking of relief through cutting and seek the God of all comfort. The cutter must also pursue God in his misery. For example, another psalm, Psalm 69, 29, but I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. So frame it from the scriptures. Understand that uh, they, they probably need to be taught how to actually turn this over to the Lord and then confront them at times. Uh, they need to be confronted about their sin. Idolatry is a sin. And if they're turning... I would say as you're, as you're getting deeper into it, I wouldn't call them to repentance very early on. Uh, you know, I think that we have to be cautious about that because the confrontation alone uh, could be damaging to the counseling process. You have, to, you have to allow for things to surface. Well, I want to get back at mom and dad. I asked them for a car. They didn't get me a car. All of my friends have a car. And here I am, lonely on a Saturday night, because I can't even drive myself to. Okay, so what is, what is the, the deeper issue that's going on, in a sense, of revenge? A Romans 12, for example, okay? Uh, you, you could turn them to that, okay, not, not that you're asking God to bring vengeance on your parents for not getting you a car. That's not the point. The point is, your heart is saying, I'm going to get them back. I'm not going to rely on God for his timing for transportation and things like that. So you would call them to repent of that. Basically, you're, you, want, you want vengeance. And let's deal with that. Let's talk about that. So it's a great question. Uh, point C is replace old patterns with new patterns. Typically, if, if the person is in your office, this is not the first time that they've cut. Okay, this is a pattern. They've probably been doing this for a time. And through circumstances, God's providence, uh, it became uh, revealed. Okay, they've cut. And sometimes a good question is, how long have you cut? Okay, you have to know these things. Well, you know, I've just cut the one time. Okay, and sometimes you'll have counselees that minimize the situation. And I don't know that you would ever want to call somebody a liar. Uh, no, really, how many times? Okay, you're not, you're not telling the whole story. Sometimes uh, the, the person will become more confident with you. But just assume for the sake of example, the person says, I've only done it one time. Okay, then, then leave it there. Table that one. We'll come back to it eventually because through the, the course of things, through wise questioning, through trying to analyze the situation further, uh, oftentimes that more things will come out. Because if more things are coming out, you could question and say, well, you said that you've only cut once and you only cut, you know, uh, a year ago, then why are you here now? You know, why do mom and dad, you know, find it so necessary for, you know, for, for you to come now? And it could be based on that one occasion, uh, the parents are like, this is a problem. Uh, then you deal with the situation at hand. You, you try to understand where they are. But typically, in my understanding, these types of things are patterns. 
Okay, and how do you deal with the pattern? Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, Paul helps us with this. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So what does replacement look like for this individual? He must be challenged on the old self. The, the motivations for cutting, the, the actual action of cutting, the, the mindset behind that cutting is an old man. They didn't learn Christ that way. Christ is not teaching you to deal with your problems through self-harm. So you have, to, you have to expose the situation, understand the pattern that they have of turning to the old man, the old, old ways of life. You have to be able to fill their mind with scripture, and that is they have to have a mind change. Now, who is responsible for that? And in the passage, is it the counselor or is it the spirit? And my answer would be yes. As a Christian brother or sister... Knowing a situation at hand, I, I do believe that it's the spirit that does that, being renewed. It's a passive. The spirit is renewing the mind, but he's renewing it through the word. And the counselor needs to be bringing the word to that person for the renewal of their mind and putting on the new self, new practices. Ephesians 4, the angry person, okay, putting off anger. Don't let the sin go down on your anger. Neither give the devil a foothold. What's the motivation? Okay, the more angry you get, the more you actually open yourself up to satanic attack. Okay, so the, the new patterns are, uh, you know, framed in some type of a tangible way so that there's new habits. Instead of, okay, I go into my room, usually after school, I'm really bummed out, something didn't happen that I wanted. Okay, at that moment, what are you turning to? Teach them to turn to the scriptures. Teach them to be productive in, in how they're dealing with the situation. And we'll get to some other methods as we get through the notes, but the, it has to be reframed. If it's a habit of the heart that has been going on for, for months, for years, then it's something that is uh, it's a process, and you're helping them to replace and to, and to drive them toward new practices so that they can uh, develop those patterns and those those things. So what is, the, what is the motivation? How do you help them? Second, he must renew his mind with godly thinking concerning this situation, driving them to Psalm 55, driving them to, to understand what it means to, uh, to share their complaint or their lament with God. Third, putting on service to the Lord and others would replace this type of, of wrong attitude. And, and sometimes you'll see a person, they're, they're embedded in this particular sin habit. Uh, how are you actually serving people? How are you branching out in your, in your body? Because what I have found, these types of in issues are uh, seclusive. Okay, they don't want to be around people. Okay, how are you involved in your youth group? What opportunities do you have in the youth group? How have you served? How could you serve? What gifts do you think that God has given you to serve? 
and, and start driving them back to reestablishing patterns of service to the Lord, because one of the things that we do in service is we get our minds off of ourselves and we start helping others. It's a basic, it's a basic thing in scriptures, but one that gets misses, missed a lot. And that is a person is struggling with this particular issue. Sin is inclusive. How do you get them to break that chain? Oftentimes by being willing to serve and to help others. Uh, point D is restorative accountability. Galatians 6.1 speaks of, If a man be overtaken with a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore that person. So a couple of different things here and concepts. First is accountability. This person is probably going to need some level of long-term accountability with a group. And not, certainly you would never want to do this in counseling, and I don't know what your policies are at church and how you counsel. I think that I think that the knowledge of this needs to be quite small. You don't just spread this around the church. All right, young lady, you march yourself up there in front of the church and you confess your sins so that you can be healed. Um, I think that that would be a colossal mistake. Has that happened in Christ's church? You better believe it. That has happened a lot where somebody sins and the idea is, oh, you who are spiritual, so the church, okay, so you have to confess your sins in front of everybody so that the whole church can gather around you, okay? And, and we hear of the horror stories of people uh, that have been uh, mis- misled at best, all right? I think abused personally, but misled by having this particular sin go so public that... Um, it's, it's so counterproductive to what you're trying to do, very much so. So accountability is a group effort. There are people who are spiritual. There should be a core group of people that will help that person become accountable and to be restored, a, a, a consistency. That's a part of that, that renewal, I believe, is, yes, this is sin. We need to deal with this sin, but the group is, is small. And the second principle down below in the passage is accountability for restoration. This is not punitive necessarily. Punitive is, I think, a huge mistake with this because if the person has confessed it to the Lord and they acknowledge it as a sin, it shouldn't be punishment-oriented. Okay, It should be restoration-oriented. We need to restore this person to a place. And as that passage continues, I need to uh, really uh, develop in myself a care of their burdens. Carry one another's burdens. Okay? Has, has their life been burdened with sin and issues? Yes. So we've been called as Christian brothers and sisters to actually bear those burdens with them. And then the last one is a refocused discipleship. Overcoming the sin of cutting is a process that takes time and consistent effort. Uh, the church, not, not the whole, and I don't want to contradict myself, and the whole church knows this. No, the church as individuals who are actually helping with this case. Uh, a youth pastor and the youth pastor's wife. Okay? 
will they will they help carry out that encouragement in the word and a consistency of accountability for the long term? Yes, they should be. It should fall upon the church. And again, I, I come back to this. I'm, I'm fully confident in the sufficiency of the scriptures to help in these even these types of issues. Okay, should it be rest- restoration and refocused d- discipleship with the church and and a secular counselor? We're going to send you two. Okay, I think that that personally, and there's uh, people that disagree with this personally. I think that this is a church issue, and this can be remedied within the church. Now you say, well, would there ever be a part? Uh, anticipating that question, would there ever be a part where you have to send this person out into some type of a, a secular world? Some of that depends on the, how, how this was found out. Persons in the public school, okay, in the church, is that, is that school actually, uh, being a teacher myself in a school, am I actually, if I find out about abuse or somebody drops the, I've, I've, I've contemplated suicide, are there very specific things that we have to do as a school uh, in line with those types of issues? Yes, uh, and, and that's very important to understand. But I do think that the refocused discipleship should be happening primarily in the church and sometimes along with the court-mandated requirements. Okay, At times, the, the issue, well, this person was found in the locker room and they were they had cut themselves to the point where they passed out because of the blood. Okay, guess what's involved now? A broad array of things. Child Protective Services. Uh, the EMS come. All of these things are now involved. Does that, does that say, oh, okay, you, you guys got it. We'll let you handle it from here. No, the restorative discipleship continues in the local church as the church carries those burdens. The church must pray for that individual. And if it's a continued sinning brother type of a situation at times, yes, it does have to expand a bit. Church discipline, uh, I don't know that that is the case in every situation, but it takes wisdom to know uh, those uh, extremes, I suppose. Third, the church must encourage the person to exercise service in the church. And not just, not just a helpful suggestion. Hey, you need to get involved with the youth group. You need to give the person a specific. You are now singing okay, on Wednesday nights with the youth group. And we would very much like for you to okay, put it in, the, in a tangible way. Not just a, boy, we'll, we'll really get you serving here now. Okay, make it specific. Help, help the individual to know, okay, these are your gifts, th- these are your desires, and how can we actually implement you into the body to start serving others? And then last, those who cut must be directed to continue faithful church attendance. One of the ways to know that this is not, you know, uh, this is not something that we're being effective in in counseling is if they abandon the consistent practice of going to church. No, you would expect a person, their family, to be attending church to be hearing the sound, uh, sound teaching of the gospel uh, in their restoration process. So cutting, difficult counseling situation for sure, uh, relying on the hope and encouragement of the scriptures, having a, a definitive framework of methodology of how you're going to attack this. And some, 
I do know, uh, you say, well, how, how long do typical counseling cases go? It just depends. Usually they say a typical counseling case of somebody struggling with something, five to seven cases. Okay, you, you've established their pattern of growth and the accountability in the church and things like that. Somebody who's doing this, somebody who's anorexic, somebody who's bulimic, you're looking at not just months, you're looking at years. Okay, where the church walks alongside of them for years. I said in counseling the hard cases, the anorexic was the most difficult, and it was well over a year of intensive counseling. We're not just talking, all right, see you next month. We're talking about an intensive counseling in which the framework of this person's life that is bent towards hurting themselves to that extent needs to, needs to be developed over the course of time as the church is actually uh, incorporating them into the body, into the accountability process and discipleship process for the long term. Now, uh, I've given you a lot of resources there. Uh, these are resources that I used in developing uh, the paper that I wrote on cutting in, when I was uh, in, in classes. Hopefully those are helpful to you. There's plenty of things that are out there. Um, some of them are secular sources and some of them are biblical counseling type of sources. Helpful in their own right. You have to read with discernment, of course. 